All right, the prophet Joel is known as the prophet of the coming day of the Lord. Thus, across the top of your paper, you'll see Joel, the coming day of the Lord. This phrase, the day of the Lord, occurs 12 times in all 12 minor prophets, 12 times. Five of them are in this book of Joel. Chapter 115, chapter 2, 1, 2, 11, 2, 31, and 3, 14. The day of the Lord, five times in this book. For this reason, Joel is then called the prophet of the day of the Lord. There are two aspects to this theme, the day of the Lord, because there's uh, two aspects to that uh, day, both judgment and salvation. That the Lord God would be coming on the day of the Lord in order to judge is rather obvious. It has an ominous tone to it. Uh, The day of the Lord is coming. It's kind of like you, as a child, do something bad, and then your brother or sister says to you, mom's coming. Right? There's this ominous feel like I've done something bad and here comes mom to uh, discipline me for it. So the day of the Lord initially comes across to us correctly to indicate that God's judgment and punishment for those who have not submitted to his rule, those who have been not been loyal to his covenant. But what's especially helpful, especially necessary for us as New Testament Christians is to grasp that it's two sides of a coin. One side's correct, we've said about judgment, but the other side is the day of the Lord indicates his salvation. It indicates his rescue. Think about the final day of judgment. We are to look ahead to that with anticipation and joy as believers, whereas unbelievers are to look ahead with that with fear of judgment. The same way the day of the Lord acts and has that role within the prophet Joel. So the Lord God would be arriving on the day of the Lord, of course, to render judgment, but also to save and honor those who have had um, handed control of their lives over to God and shown faithfulness to his covenant. So on your handout, you'll find a summary of the book of Joel. I wrote this, so you can um, take it or leave it. It is my best way of trying to summarize in one paragraph what the book of Joel is all about. So your summary on the top of your uh, handout. An unstoppable swarm of locusts came and devastated the country were impacted by how much damage sin caused and what terrible judgment sin deserved. Since our God theater, remember I introduced the Minor Prophets as showing a series of plays, like a God theater to show us about God. Since our God theater invariably shows judgment unto salvation, Joel lines up with the pattern. Only God was able to restore the locust-eaten country, and he did so by redirecting his devastating locust judgment Onto his son alone, which once for all satisfied God's punishment for sin. After the son rose from the dead, God the Father, as promised, gave his Holy Spirit to God the Son. The Son then poured out his holy, life giving Spirit who enabled the people to repent and believe. In this way, God provided resurrection life to his dead people. God, Father, Son, and Spirit, restored the people. The Spirit dwelled with the people to preserve their holy walk before God. So that's kind of a New Testament perspective summary statement of the book of Joel. So next on your handout, you'll find a list of themes. Then you'll find how it says the man. We'll do just a little bit about who Joel was. Then familiar phrases. You will, as you read, as you go through life in the modern American context, you'll probably come across these um, phrases, so I wanted you to notice where they are in Joel. And then the outline, we'll be, spend most of our time today going through the outline, those five statements. And then tucked within our outline is the fulfillments of the prophecy on the bottom of the page, but I just listed those out for you separately. So that's your handout. I'd like to start by inviting you to turn to the book of Joel. It's in your clean pages, where we rarely go, and trying to get us to go there more frequently nowadays. Minor Prophets, book of Joel right after Hosea, which we covered last time. I decided not to read the whole book. It's, of course, available to you. You knew we were coming to this, so um, I will be reading various phrases and verses as we go. But for starters, I'd just like to read verses 1 through 4 of chapter 1, and then jump to verse 15. And then we'll start working our way through our handout. Joel 1.1 The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, you elders, give ear all inhabitants of the land. 
Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell it to your children, tell your children of it, and let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. I jump to verse 15. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and as destruction from the Almighty it comes. All right, let's work our way through the handout. The next section is um, the, the uh, themes, a warning or an invitation to all humans, and a response is required. So as we said, the day of the Lord has two angles to it. One is judgment, so that's a warning. The other is blessing, salvation, rescue. So that's an invitation to, to come to God, and the method to come to God is through repentance and faith. Then another theme is our biggest thing to fear. Not a swarm of locusts, not destruction, not military invasion. Always our biggest thing to fear is God. And yet, if God is our biggest thing to fear, which he is, then what's our biggest source of hope regarding fearing God? It's God himself. Uh, Joel is my favorite out of the Minor Prophets, and especially chapter 2, verse 13, where after we describe judgment for a while and the coming doom and impending, you can feel the pressure of the literature. You get to verse 13, and God says, yet even now, right under his, you know, advance of the army of the Lord with the Lord at the head of the army, even then he's saying, turn to me. Not turn to me and I'll judge, turn to me and I'll save. So if our biggest thing to fear is God, our biggest way to get out of that or our source of hope and change is God himself. Turn to God, which seems counterintuitive because he's the very one coming in judgment, but that's what we're all called to do. Third theme, what's the long-term impact of sin? Full devastation in the day of judgment. As we talk about this locust plague, as we think of it mirrored in a military invasion in those days, we can fast forward and think of it as God's judgment in his hand in perdition or hell. That's where this is actually pictured, right? If there's two things, the day the Lord brings blessing, heaven, the day the Lord brings judgment, hell. So ultimately, that's where the book points if that helps you to keep it clear, I want to put the main themes out there for you. The, the fourth um, main theme is how do we avoid that impact? Of course, repentance. And God restores and blesses abundantly. And the last of the five themes there, to whom does this core warning or invitation apply? Every single person in every single age. This is a timeless message from the book of Joel. Every person who doesn't believe ought to be warned and invited to believe, every person who does believe ought to be reminded that God has rescued, that he provides salvation, that we're safe in him, that he's, the day of the Lord for us is rescue and blessing. Next on your handout is the man, the man uh, Joel. So what's interesting as you look at all of the minor prophets together is that most of them will list the kings under which they serve. Joel does not. As I read to you already in verse 1, that is about all that we have about the history of the man named Joel. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. That's it. What are we supposed to make of that? Where's the rest of it? Uh, he served under King so-and-so and King so-and-so and King so-and-so and his great-grandfather was this and so on. The person of Joel remains unclear. In fact, because of that, the exact dates of his ministry remain unclear. Some will say the 8th century, some will say the 9th century, but there's nothing unclear about the message of his writing. He's writing about the day of the Lord coming, and he's writing to everybody. That leads us to statements that I make on your handout there. Number one, under man there. Not the usual info. We don't have as much as we usually have for the minor prophets. What we do have is historical. We're saying this is not a made-up man. This is not a straw man. It was actually a man named Joel who lived, and so he's historical in that way. But we're not clear exactly when. 
And I would say to you, because of the God that we know and the God that we serve, he doesn't do anything by accident. So this is intentional. God is vague about who Joel was on purpose. God is vague about the years in which Joel served on purpose, and that helps to serve the book and our theme. In other words, and my next point, bullet point, Joel is just a voice. As Isaiah prophesied, Isaiah 40, verse 3, a voice coming in the wilderness, and that's fulfilled by John the Baptist in John 1, verse 23, that kind of voice. A voice who, it doesn't matter who John the Baptist is. It matters what he's saying. And there's a respect in which it doesn't matter who the Bible teacher is. It doesn't matter who the Bible study leader is. It doesn't matter who the preacher is. What matters is the truth of what's being said, and if it comes from God through his word, pay attention to that, not the person. So this fact that we have so little information about Joel means I shouldn't have even spent this long talking about him. No one through all of biblical scholarship history has much time or many pages spilled of ink on who Joel was. No one has ever been distracted by the man Joel. Isn't that a beautiful thing? We must focus on the message of Joel because it's all we've got. It kind of forces our hands to stay on topic. So what left can we say about the man? He has a poetic style. You'll see that as we go through verses today. He has very many figures of speech, so get yourself ready for poetic and figures of speech and, and that sort of language. It's very engaging literature. He has some skills. But Joel the prophet gives us no biographical information about himself, and it's okay. Because God is the one speaking through the voice, through the pen of the nearly no-name Joel, the unimportant man, Joel. In a sense, he's never been the important thing. The message is the important thing. The message of God through Joel is clear. The land is going to suffer a devastating judgment as a result of a plague of locusts. The land we're referring to is the land of Judah, and Joel's ministry is primarily directed toward the southern kingdom. So next on your handout, I listed for you the phrases that you might find familiar as you read and walk through life modern America. Phrases like, or just because of your reading of the New Testament, these might sound familiar to you. The sun and the moon are darkened. Rend your hearts, not your garments. God has given the early and the latter rain. God will restore to you the years the locusts have eaten. I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. I'll restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem. Beat your plowshares into swords, which is actually backwards from how we usually hear it. I'll explain that. And then the valley of decision. Valley of decision. Who's deciding what is significant there? We'll talk about that and get to chapter 3. So now you're ready for the overview of the book. And here I provided for you the outline that I'll follow. Day of the locust, chapter 1, verses 1 to 20. Day of the Lord chapter 2, verses 1 through 17. Day of Restoration, chapter 2, verses 18 to 27. Day of the Spirit, chapter 2, 28 to 32. And then Day of Decision, chapter 3, verses 1 to 21. If you're ready, here we go. I'm going to work our way through the book. The Day of the Locust, first section, chapter 1. Joel began his book by describing a recent locust plague that had devastated the land of Judah. Verse 2, Joel presented the issue of the locust plague by asking a question of the audience. Has anyone here today ever seen an event that compares in devastation to this plague of locusts that we have just witnessed? Anyone? Anyone? None of the folks could recall a tragedy is bad, so he takes it a step farther, and he asks whether anything like this has happened in the day of our fathers. Those of you who are older, remember your parents or your grandparents? saying to you any stories anywhere close to this bad? Anyone's father, grandfather, anyone ever heard of something like this? No? Okay. Well, then verse 3. Joel commanded that the story of the catastrophe be passed on because it's new, it's huge, and it's significant. Future generations will hear about this. You see to it that you pass it along because the plague is the work of God. And God has done something, and God has interpreted what he's done, so we need to learn from it, and pass it along. Verse 4, we get the description. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust eaten, what the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten, what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. These poor people had nine words for locust. <laughs> you know how we have a lot of words for the snow? <laughs> a 
a lot more than they do along the equator. <laughs> we become specialists in snow. They became specialists in locusts, those poor people. These are different words for locusts. They're, they're familiar with the damage locusts can cause. And what's clear is that Joel has piled up terms to emphasize the overwhelming nature of this catastrophe. The locust plague is so bad that their lives were threatened for lack of food. You just think, oh no, we lost a couple of fields because bugs got in the corn. That, that's nowhere near what we're supposed to realize from this. The locust plague is on the level of the giant plagues, like Exodus chapter 10, verses 4 to 6 and 12 to 15. One of the, the big 10 plagues that God sent on Egypt was locusts. But this time, here in the book of Joel, the locusts were sent against Judah, not against the enemy Egypt, but against God's own people, Judah. And what must they tell the upcoming generations regarding this? That God is sovereign, that God judges sin, that God rescues, and that God calls everyone to repent. The, the locust plague was a call to repent. So we all, as we study this, ask ourselves an important question. What would it take for God to get our attention? What would it take for us to reach a point of crying out to the Lord, returning on our knees to God in prayer, and knowing that we have nowhere else to turn? This is absolutely beyond us. Verse 5, Joel calls the people to mourn. The verbs in verse 5 are awake, weep, and wail. He's speaking to a spiritually intoxicated people. He's uncovering the subtle sin of complacency by calling it intoxication. Drunkards are those who are oblivious to the things that have importance and significance around us. Those who are inebriated spiritually are least likely to realize that judgment is coming upon them and judgment has come upon them. However, when the wine has been cut off from them, as it were, to follow the analogy, then they too will see and understand what has happened to the community. The party's over, as it were, you know, the next morning after drunkards do what they do at night. In the morning, the party's over. Read the sign that God has written across the cornfields, across the wheat fields, across the grain fields, and start to become aware this morning of the weight of it, of what has happened to the community. In verse 6, we have the reason why the drunks must wake up. They were invaded. And the enemy force has come through our land. Of course, you realize what we're talking about is locusts, but they're a metaphor for military armies coming. Okay, so you get the double picture. But then we get a third picture here. He starts talking about lions in verse 6. What's all this about lions? It's a poetic way of repeating that as you take a closer look at the locusts, if you take a really close-up view of the mouth of a locust, it's kind of scary and intimidating looking. It's scary enough that makes you think of a lion. Ferocious enemy has come to attack, and they just don't stop. It means like verse 7, Joel stops talking word pictures. He makes it more plain. All vegetation and produce has been cut off. Those little grasshoppers have just cut off all of our future. Our future wine because I ate our grapes. They didn't stop there. They ate up the green grape vines themselves. So start to let it weigh on you. Not today, not tomorrow, but soon there will be no more wine. Not today, not tomorrow, but soon there will be no more food. Period. This is an agricultural society. They did not simply eat the figs they ruined the fig trees, as we read on. The trees are dead. There is no crop this year. There will be no crop next year. We can't grow new fig trees fast enough. What would you start with? There will be no crop the following year. Let me inject one fact here, a modern scientific fact. One grasshopper, locust, can lay eggs and in four months' time, have 18 million living descendants. That's how this sort of stuff happens, is the rapid multiplication of locusts. The density rate of 1,000 locusts per square yard, you with me? 1,000 locusts in one square yard flying above you makes it such that a swarm of locusts can block out the sun. Start to let this 
fall on you just how serious this locust plague is and how God is able to use any part of his created order to bring about judgment and salvation. Notice verses 6 and 7. Read, my land, my vine, my fig tree. Whose land? Whose vine? Whose fig tree? Joel's? No. Judah's? No. It's God's land, his vine, his fig tree. Remember, ever since verse 1, this book is the word of the Lord that came to prophet Joel. It, it was God's. And so often in the Old Testament, to put further weight to it, vines and fig tree and land are symbols of God's blessing and bounty and peace. So take those three exact symbols and say that they are destroyed by locusts and it tells you God's blessing is withdrawn and his judgment is present. That God himself is involved in the suffering of his land and his people. The land is God's by right and even his people are his. The people occupy his land and they're only tenants in it while he allows. So, so the prophet speaks to the people in the Lord's name and this reassures his hearers of God's vested interest in their predicament. His passionate concern for what belongs to him stands behind the tragedy as its cause and its hope of solution. So here God sows the seed of hope to encourage his people. Their prayers will not be in vain. What if the people gather and pray to the Lord of the land, the Lord of the vines, the Lord of the fig trees? Verse 8, Joel calls on them to mourn. Uh, The verbs in verse 8 are lament and wear sackcloth. To lament in sackcloth is like wearing a gunny shack gunny sack for your shirt. A young woman trades in her wedding dress for sackcloth because her groom has died. And this young bride lost her husband before he could become her husband. So that's an illustration of the nation having lost the crops before they could harvest the crops. Harvest time changed from a time of rejoicing to a time of deep mourning and terrible sorrow, much like this poor woman's time of rejoicing has become a time of mourning and terrible sorrow. In verse 9, the focus of disappointment is now the temple. Suddenly, there's not enough grain and oil for the twice-daily offerings of the worship of God that were required. The, The plague was recent enough that the cattle had not yet died off. Soon, the worshiping of God with the required animal offerings would become a problem. The locust caused a looming crisis of worship. Verse 10, the fields are ruined, the grounds are dried up, no grain, no wine, no vegetable oil for cooking. Verse 11, Joel literally and poetically says, wilt, farmers. So the beautiful picture, if if you allow me to say beautiful, I mean it's just literature that's rich. The fields have wilted, and the farmer stands in the middle of his field, and he wilts too. Joel says, go ahead and wilt, farmer. The crops dried In a drought, the farmer themselves are wilting in despair. Verse 12, the trees are dried up, so is gladness. Verse 13, the effect of the disasters that worship has ceased. It's time for lamenting and sackcloth. And now the harvest festival has been canceled. There's a place, an event, for an event now on the calendar for a different kind. It's time for prayer. A time of crying out before the Lord together. Who's to pray? Verse 2, the elders and all the inhabitants of the land. Verse 5, the people who are so complacent they were called spiritual drunkards. Verse 9, the priests. Verse 11, the farmers. Verse 12, the general populace. Everyone's supposed to call out to God in prayer. It's a serious call for everyone. So when people react to calamity with pride, we say, how could God do this to us? And when we react with apathy, we say, well, it really doesn't matter anyway. And when we react with despair and resignation, we say, there's no reason to go on because God is not powerful enough or not trustworthy enough to give us what we need. But the lesson from the prophet Joel, his response to calamity, undercuts and dismisses all those wrong reactions. This passage teaches us what to do in a calamity, to come to God in repentance. Verses 13 and 14, they're instructed to cry out to the Lord solemnly with warning over their own sins, to cry out to the Lord humbly, with utter dependence as creatures on their creators, nothing they could do to uh, make crops come fast enough. Verse 15, the day of the Lord is near. Verse 16, the food was cut off, joy and worship is cut off. Verse 17, the grain is dried up. Verse 18, the cattle were moaning because their hunger, the herds mill about with no grass to find to eat. And the sheep are also suffering. 
They're to cry out to the Lord longingly, like the cattle who are moaning out there already for their next meal. We're to cry out to the Lord like that. Verse 19, Joel led the way. When he himself went to the right person and prayed, To you, O Lord, I call. Verse 19. Verse 20, even the beasts in the field seemed to know that only God could provide, so the animals were panting for God. If even the beasts were turning to God, would all persons finally get their senses to them and thirst for God alone? If in prosperity a nation does not remember and worship the the Lord God, it's sad. But then when God brings a time of calamity, if a nation still doesn't remember the Lord, we have to wonder, what would it take for us to seek after the Lord. So that's chapter one, the first section on your or handout, the day of locusts. We move now to the second um, section of the outline, the day of the Lord itself, verses uh, one through 17 of chapter two. Verse one, here's a paraphrase. Blow the trumpet, sound an alarm. Let everyone tremble for the day of the Lord is coming. It's near. Verse three, nothing escapes. Verse six, all faces grow pale. Verses seven to 10, uh, no walls can keep out God's army. It's a description of the marching forward, a very beautiful poetic description of the marching forward of the locust armies, one right after the other. You kill one, the next guy in line just kind of fills in the spot. Marching they go, nothing can stop them. No walls can keep out God's army, they just march up and over. No bribing of God's army, no turning it aside for any reason. God's army is undivertible and unstoppable. They're more committed than a missile locked on target. And when God's army is sent to slay, they slay. And then they return home. Verse 11, the Lord utters his voice before his army. The day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? There's no escaping. And then the beauty, as I mentioned, verse 12 into 13. Yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning, verse 13, and rend your hearts, there's the phrase, rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Again, another well-known phrase of God describing himself from the book of Exodus, his character. It's always interesting to hear the first sermon a minister preaches in his pulpit. Newly ordained minister, the very first sermon he preaches. Because it's key, it seems to me, to what he regards as the most important message of the Bible. Um, Because of this, a special interest for us to note what Jesus preached in his opening sermon. Matthew 4.17, from that time Jesus began to preach and say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Later, when Jesus sent out his 12 disciples two by two, their first preaching trip, he gave them the same message to proclaim, that men should repent. Mark 6.12, after his resurrection, Jesus commissioned his disciples to preach what? Repentance for forgiveness of sins to all nations, Luke 24.47. And then Acts 2, 38, when on the day of Pentecost, we find Peter the Apostle carrying out this commission as he told the crowd assembled in Jerusalem right after the Holy Spirit came down, repent and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. That was the text I chose for my first sermon years ago. And later Paul told the Ephesians that the message of his preaching was repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Acts 20, 21. So throughout the New Testament, we find the same call to repentance and promise of God's forgiveness through Christ that we find here in Joel. The reason that the message of repentance is so important for Jesus' preaching, the apostles' preaching, is the same reason that repentance was important for the prophet Joel's preaching. All preachers, Old Testament and New, have one thing in common. The people to whom we speak are sinners whom God calls to repent. Return to the Lord, says God, through all of his voice boxes. Repentance was of such importance that God says it through all of his voice boxes, and it cannot be conducted without God's blessing. Repentance is a gift from God. Remember, chapter 113. Chapter 113. Lament because green offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of the Lord. Now here, chapter 2, verse 14. Who knows? whether God will provide a grain offering for the Lord. If, if grain offering is what's needed to worship God, God will provide the grain offering. If repentance and faith is what's needed to truly worship God, then God will provide the gifts of repentance and faith. Verse 15 begins the same way verse 1 began. Blow the trumpet in Zion. The first trumpet was the call to repent. 
The second trumpet is the trumpet calling us to worship, to trust in God, repent and believe. Verse 16, we're to gather with the people. Verse 17, we are to pray. Pray what? Spare your people, O Lord. It's a cry of utter dependence on God. And just as Joel called for a return to the Lord in repentance and worship, so also God calls us to return to the Lord through Jesus Christ in repentance and worship. Third section, moving on. Chapter 2, verses 18 to 27, day of restoration. Between verse 17 and verse 18, there's a lag in time. In that time, the people took Joel seriously, and they repented. The people gathered for a holy fast and a holy worship service. They had no grain. They had no oil. They had only the knowledge that God's character is rich in mercy. So with no grain as they're commanded to, no oil as they're commanded to, they come to worship God anyway. And in verse 18, God took pity on his people. God had compassion. Chapter 2, verse 12 came true. Yet even now, return to me with all your heart. Verse 14, who knows? God may turn and have pity and leave blessing of grain and oil. Yes, verse 19, the Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I'm sending you grain, wine, oil that you'll be satisfied. He turns barrenness into fruitfulness when we turn to him empty-handed. Verse 20, I'll remove the northerner from you. Who's the northerner? That's the invading locust army. A metaphor for the invading military army a metaphor for God's chastisement for sin. He'll turn it away because you're repenting and believing. It's a beautiful picture of how the gospel works. The locusts will do no further damage. God calls them off. The enemy nations will do no further damage. God calls them off. Your own sin will cause no further damage. God calls it off. The damage that's already done depends on his mercy, but no further damage because you're turning from it to God. How? How does all this happen? It points us ahead to the future cross. The only source of reversal that God's full wrath for our sin falls on Jesus, he takes that unto death, he rises again, and gives us nothing but blessing, rescue, repentance, and faith. God's word brings this conviction of sin. It brings newness of forgiveness and cleansing and healing and new obedience, new fruitfulness, and we share in the rescue. Then verses 21 to 24 show there's good reason for hope because the Lord turns grief to joy. Verse 21, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Verse 22, fear not, O beasts of the field. Remember, they were moaning. For the pastures are green again. Man, how does that happen? God's blessing. Verse 23, be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God. If the beasts are rejoicing, how about getting on the bandwagon, O people, right? Children of Zion. Notice we don't rejoice in the gifts God gives. We rejoice in the Lord himself. There's hope for the rains. Verse 23, rain symbolizes the right relationship with God, totally dependent on him. Learning to turn to the Lord is our only source of hope and joy. Grief turns to joy, as Paul says, Philippians 4, 4, rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice. Imagine going backwards to undo the current problem. Would you go back in time to undo it? Um, Locust plague. Would you go back in time and repent before it happened to undo it? An earthquake, would you go back in time before to undo it? Your problem, whatever you're facing, would you go back in time to repent earlier to prevent those problems of chastisement from coming? And then when you fast forward again, would you write the life of your story, the story of your life differently as days progressed from the genesis of it to now? If you say we would, you are repentant. Do you get it? This is what we're called to do. We would prefer that God would prevent our losses. But since we can't go back in time, we're now in the mess that's followed the locust plague. We come to God and that God alone can restore and we come to him in utter dependence. He says, I'll restore, reimburse, or repay your losses. Which path do we then crave? Preventing loss, which is not an open path to us, or reimbursing loss, which is the path that God opens to us. Repentance means reimbursing loss. We seem to crave the grace of prevention when we're already past that point. We keep wanting it, and we're sinning again. That's not repentance. Repentance is saying, I'm in a royal mess, nothing I could do, 
only God can do. So I'm turning to God. And God gives the grace of endurance. He gives the grace of refinement. He gives the grace of repayment. He refreshes. He restores. He gives what we don't deserve. It's the beauty of the gospel. Because this reversal comes from judgment to restoration, and it showcases God's glory. Verse 25, I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. It doesn't say you can restore. I will restore to you the years the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, and my great army. He lists all those fancy names for locusts. And he says every single one of them and all that they took away, I'm going to restore it. Guess what this word restore is? I'm quizzing you who have studied Jeremiah with me. A couple Hebrew words you know. It's an easy one. I'll give you a hint. Peace. It's the word shalom here. The word restore in verse 25 is the word shalom, which means to complete, to be made whole, to be made good, to be compensated, or to be repaid. It's a covenant of peace, and so God will give peace to those who don't deserve it, who made a big mess. We could make money and repay it, but only God can restore in the ways that we lost things. You can't make up time. You can't go back in time and get stuff back. But God can. Romans 8.28, all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. He removes our shame. He supplies our need. He gives every reason to praise him and he takes things that were destroyed and turns them into victories, turns them into fruitful things. Look at verse 26. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord God who has wondrously dealt with you. Your nightmare is cured. Let me ask you this. How could a man who is unjustly accused, unjustly imprisoned for 30 years, lost the best years of his life, come out and not be angry at God, society, the courts, everyone? How is he not angry? How does that happen? Because he's truly alive, spiritually. And he takes what God has for him. There's power here through God's grace. He sends rain, which is grace. The crops are fruitfulness. Meaningful lives can happen again. An enjoyable life can happen again. Our status is, God says, my people. So we're revved up to receive this prospect of rain. Cries of lament are replaced by cries of alleluia. The nightmare is over. Verse 27, the Lord promises to protect us from more shame and gives us certainty about his presence. The goal of new agricultural growth is not just full stomachs. It's much larger. Restoration to health is a whole people, a whole community, which depends at its core upon each having a right relationship to the Lord. Every life becomes a masterpiece of God. What was spoiled here becomes fruitful here. Only God can restore the years. Only God can repay those losses. God can. God can. Only God can. Think of Good Friday into Saturday. What changes? Only resurrection morning. Only Jesus' resurrection. The giant repayment. Think back over all of world history from Adam. What did we lose in Adam's sin and being kicked out of the garden? The world's disappointment in Adam is repaid in the blessing of the new Adam. So then we move on to our next section, the day of the Spirit, verses 28 to 32, Joel 2, 28 to 32. I will trickle out, leak out, begrudgingly let a little go. If I'm in a good mood, give some. What's the verb here for spirit? I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Is there any wonder why this is picked up in the New Testament? But how much more helpful to understand it in context, right? That's why we study the the Minor Prophets. We study the book in context. We have direct New Testament interpretations of this passage. The Apostle Peter applied these words to the events of the church receiving from God the gift of the Holy Spirit on the day we call the day of Pentecost. Acts 1, 4-5, Jesus told his disciples to wait in Jerusalem for the coming of his Spirit. Jesus ascended on the day... Of this happening, one of the three Jewish festivals of the year, we call the Festival of Pentecost, the people who all gathered together in one place. Acts 2, 2 through 4, we're told about the Spirit coming down. 
with a sound like the blowing of a violent wind, with the appearance of what seemed to be tongues of fire over each of them. And then all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit, began to speak in other languages as the Spirit enabled them. It was right then that Peter picked up this verse and preached the first sermon of the Christian era. He interpreted this amazing event, this passage, as the fulfillment. Verse 28 of Joel 2 is used to interpret the coming of the Holy Spirit of God in the church. The root promise of the classic prophet Moses in Numbers 11.29, saying he wished that, wished that all of the Lord's people would be prophets, is what the Lord would do when he put his spirit on all of his people. We're all prophets. We're all prophets, priests, and kings. In the early period, God's spirit was not given to all people the way that the spirit was given now to all Christians God was with his people, but his spirit did not come on each one of them. His spirit didn't dwell inside each one of them as we now have the indwelling spirit. God's spirit came on certain individuals for specific tasks like Moses and the prophets. Now God's spirit's upon each believer. In the Reformation, we call it the priesthood of all believers. The relationship between various parts of the church is developed in Ephesians chapter 4. And I'm running out of time, so you get the idea of the Holy Spirit coming in the blessing and benefit. Let me jump to chapter 3. We'll finish out. Joel 3, the, uh, the final section, the day of decision, because I want you to understand the day of decision, who's making the decision. So when in verse 1 of Joel 3, God promises to restore the fortunes of Judah, it's connected to verse 2, when God will gather all the nations, bring them down to what's called the Valley of Jehoshaphat, the Valley of Decision. In other words, God will call all nations into a grand courtroom for God to render a decision against them. It's God making the decision. See, there's two sides of this sword of the Lord. God is fighting for someone, and God is fighting against someone else. And so notice how it's proven in verse 2. I will enter into judgment against them, all nations, on behalf of my people and my heritage Israel, because they, the nations, have scattered my people among the nations and divided up my land. What does this mean? God is at war to protect his people against the evil nations the pagan nations. There's a military campaign that resulted in prisoners of war, confiscation of land, selling of people into slavery. Verses 4 to 6, the oppressors, there will be payback. The form changes to speech from God against a few nations in particular. Verses 4 to 6, this speech is spoken in order to bring comfort to God's suffering people. Is this vengeance? Is this unnecessary force? Should we more gentle and more uh, sophisticated modern people feel bad uh, about getting comfort from someone else's demise as we read places like Joel chapter 3? No, your, your safety comes hand in hand with catching the criminal. You, 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 you're not going to be safe until the criminal is caught. That basic truth is being expressed here. In fact, fast forward to Christ, look, look what God did. We wronged brothers and sisters in the Lord. We're guilty before God. We've not done right. We oppressed others. God will make it right and judge us. However, God has also promised us safety. Which is it for me? Judging me because that's right or giving me safety because he promised? God's in quite a predicament. How can God deliver just punishment for all the sins of all of us and also keep me safe because others have sinned against me and others oppress me. It all is made right at the cross. He takes our sins and puts them on Christ and God takes his anger against our sins and expresses that against Jesus in our place so that we are safe. Our wrongs are judged and we are safe. You see, that's the only place that it's made right. God takes the sins of others against us and he shows us our safety from that by his wrath against Jesus on the cross. It's illustrated in Colossians 2.15. Having disarmed the powers and authorities, God made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. In other words, how does God pay back the oppressors? <clears throat> by the cross. How does God disarm the powers and authorities? By the cross. How does God make a public spectacle of those who oppress you? By the cross. Verse 9, proclaim to the nations. What? Verse 9, here in Joel 3. Proclaim this among the nations. Consecrate for war. 
stir up the mighty men. What does that mean? I mean, there's a spiritual battle that's war between God and the enemies of God. So Christians have a truly safe place within God. We are with God in Christ. Colossians 3, 1. Since then you've been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Listen, verse 3, Colossians 3, 3. Your life is now hidden with Christ in God. You're not in jeopardy. You're not in danger. Your life is safe, completely hidden with God in Christ. So who gets to go into that truly safe place? All who believe in him. It's simply by faith in Christ Jesus. How, how do you get in? By grace through faith. Okay, let's talk about that grace. At, at the end of the world, the Lord will not disappoint us with empty words. I did my best. I'm really so sorry. I, I couldn't control everything. I'm sorry you suffered. I'm sorry it was hurtful. God's not saying that to us. He's saying my grace is sufficient. I made good out of the bad. But he will come through for us. God will provide an army, as it were, a spiritual army, to rescue us, take us home, deal with all the enemies, the world, the flesh, the devil. What about right now? (laughs) Okay, at the end of the world, we got it. It's all be straightened out. What about now? God does not lack the power to protect us now, to prevent bad things from happening to us, but his purpose is bigger and better than our comfort each day. His purpose is our holiness. So he allows suffering to come to us as a chastisement to bring us to a point of repentance and faith, of growth and sanctification. He would have us for a time be subject to our own cross, to our own sufferings, would allow wrongs to be done to us and even allow us to do wrongs to others. And at the end, he will avenge all the wrongs done both directions. What? Only God could do that. He removed dreadful disturbances throughout the whole world for the sake of his people. And for a while, he allows many miseries. But he fully intends to pull his remnant people up out of the misery one fine day and to keep us in faith all the days until then. Look at verse 10. Beat your plowshares into swords, your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I'm a warrior. It seems backwards from the statements we see in the Bible. Isaiah 2, Micah 4, they spoke and wrote of the coming kingdom of Christ, saying, beat your swords into pruning hooks, your spears into plowshares, but Joel has inverted the sentence. He's going the wrong directions, kind of into war. Aren't we supposed to go into peace? What do we make of this? How do we understand Isaiah, Micah, compared to Joel speaking opposite things? Well, the words of Isaiah and Micah We're intended to show that when the warring world would finally be at peace, when Christ reconciled men to God, and when Jesus taught men to cultivate brotherly kindness. But here, in Joel 3.10, he writes that all farming will stop because of the war. The fields will be neglected, and all people will apply themselves to the war effort. When he says, let the weak say, I'm a warrior, if a soldier was sick, he'd be dismissed from the army. However, there's no exemption from this war. God will excuse no one from this fighting. God himself will compel all people to become warriors. God will even draw the weak and sick from their beds and all people will be constrained to take up arms. What does it mean? How does it apply? He's given us a lot of evidence of his fatherly love for us. He will not allow someone to attack his people and then to plead that they're too sick to receive what's coming to them. Everyone's consecrated for spiritual warfare is a way of saying it. Verses 11 to 16 introduce what's stated in verse 15 twice, the valley of decision, the valley of verdict. Verse 11, hurry up and gather everyone. Verse 12, wake the nations, come down to the valley. Verse 13, the harvest is ripe. Verse 14, the day of the Lord is near. Where is it located? The valley of decision. Verse 15, sun and moon are darkened again. Verse 16, the Lord roars from Zion, but the Lord is a refuge to his people. Who's deciding? It's not our decision. It's the valley of decision for the Lord God. It's his verdict that matters, not our own desires, our own efforts, our own decisions. The day of the Lord is a good thing for us because we're God's covenant people by faith. The coming judgment day is a day of healing and strengthening and grace for us. God's healing power, he has made us fountains of his grace to others, so we spread and share this good news. And uh, I'm out of time, but the, the, the remaining verses describe the opposite of what we started with. 
the devastation of the locusts. Everything's dead. Now we have wine, milk, water, spiritual refreshment, a fountain flowing. It's pictures of what Jesus said in John 7, a feast and those who come to drink. It's pictures like Ezekiel 47, the water flowing from out the temple. Joel 3 is much like that. Again, you see these things fulfilled in Acts 2. Peter went on to proclaim that you should repent and be baptized. The promise is for you and your children and those who are far off. Verse 21 of Joel 3, God pardons our guilt. It's mentioned again in Hebrews 9. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. Um, uh, Yeah. Well, the Bible tells us that the wrath of God is a consuming fire, and uh, those who are in Christ are the only ones who are safe. Let me just end with a story. There's a lot I've given you to absorb, so I wanted to try to illustrate the whole thing with one little story that maybe you can walk away with pleasantly. Years ago, so not in a modern farming context, years ago, a farmer grew fields of grain. There were trains in those days that used coal to burn. So it often happened that sparks from the train would set a fire in the field. This farmer knew that, so he built a fire break in his field just in case, and he kept his eye on the trains. Sure enough, one day a train passed by and the farmer saw smoke far away in his field. He uh, lit a fire so that it would burn up to his fire break, and so he would only lose half of his field. Sure enough, he, he lost half of his field. He's thankful for what he had done, but he's kind of walking through his field feeling, woe is me, kicking stuff and being kind of crabby. How did God let this happen? He noticed a hen that had been way out there and caught in the fire and burned, so he kicked the hen. Five little chicks ran out from underneath the burned, dead mother's body. It's just a little picture for you of when the wrath of God comes, we have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we're safe. He died for us, that we be safe in him. The Bible says in Romans 8, 1, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Uh, message of the book of Joel. Let's pray. Father, how we thank